The following is a sermon from the Edgington Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Taylor Ridge, Illinois. Well, friends, we remember that the sacraments are the gospel made visible, where we can see, or also in the Lord's Supper, taste, touch, observe, feel the realities of God's promises in the gospel. But we now open the scriptures together that we would know more fully those promises in the gospel. So if you have not already... Uh, Let me invite you to take your copy of God's Word and open with me to Colossians chapter 2. If you need a Bible, grab one in the rack in front of you and open with me to the book of Colossians. It's on page 983 of the New Testament. We'll be opening there together. We've been in the book of Colossians now almost uh, nearing two months. This is our ninth in this series, Christ Preeminent, the book of Colossians, as we have been unpacking this letter of Paul to this small church in a small place, Believing a great gospel of a big, great God in His grace through Jesus Christ who has redeemed them. And Paul is writing to them that they would learn to orient themselves in the midst of the gospel story. And what we as a church need to do as well, just like the Colossian Christians, is understand how the gospel story is our story. How God's work in the world through Jesus Christ tells us what God is doing in our lives as well. So, if you're going there to Colossians, especially we're beginning chapter 2 this morning, what Paul has been doing so far in the book of Colossians, especially in this part, is that Paul has been explaining how the gospel works. He has been explaining how the gospel is going forward into all the world, reaching places even like Colossae. He is writing to them about the gospel which he has preached and they have received. And I want us to affirm together here in Edgington that the gospel that Paul preached is the same gospel, Lord willing, that we preach today. And the same gospel that the Colossian Christians believed is the same gospel that you believe. And so we are united together as the church of Jesus Christ under the ministry of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the mystery hidden now revealed. You'll see that language again and again. Now, Paul has a turn in this letter as he goes to a very particular point. He wants these Christians to know the gospel and have confidence in the advance of the gospel for one very particular reason that is going to come out throughout the book of Colossians and the reason why was actually hinted at back in chapter 1, verse 23. So let's just look at that quickly. In 1, verse 23, Paul writes about... Continuing in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel. We can read in that the fact that Paul is concerned about the church continuing stable and steadfast with the reality that it is possible to shift away from the gospel. Paul is concerned about the fact that the church comes under pressure and faces the risk of shifting. And Paul writes to prevent that from happening, to warn them about it, so there's a transition that we'll see in chapter 2, verse 1. So, last week it was Paul as the gospel minister, how he ministers the gospel. We saw that last week. This week, Paul is focusing on how we, the church, receive his gospel ministry. 
Paul writes about himself as a gospel minister. He writes about the church as the recipients of gospel ministry. So, dear friends, we want to think about that reality today, that you are a recipient of gospel ministry, and we should think how we should receive the ministry of the gospel. That's the point of the text this morning. Let's pray and ask God's blessing upon the Scriptures that we would hear it in faith. Heavenly Father, we turn now to Your Word, believing that here You speak to us, that even as You wrote through the Apostle Paul by Your Holy Spirit these words, we pray that we might also receive those same words in the same faith, hope, and love that the Colossian Christians received them. We pray, Lord, that the ministry of the Gospel here in Edgington would be beautiful, powerful, convicting, transforming, and would magnify Your Son, Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Now hear the Word of God, Colossians 2, in the first five verses. This is the Word of God. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God abides forever. Do keep your Bible open there, and you'll see in your bulletin the the outline of what we're looking at this morning. Paul is writing about how these Colossian Christians receive the ministry of the gospel, and we want to know how you and I, as Christians in the 21st century, should receive the ministry of the gospel as well. Now, the reason why Paul is so concerned about this reality of of shifting and the church not shifting is because everybody has a desire in some ways uh, to, to know the truth to know what is true. There are several things that we could say about that, though, by way of introduction here. For some people, they have a desire to know the truth so intently that they have a strong desire to go deeper. They want to know more. They want to know more of the intricacies. They're not afraid of the cliff. They come up to the edge and look down there saying, I wonder how deep that is. They want to know the depths. They want to know more. And when that has been true in the Christian faith, that's a beautiful thing. But... Sometimes what happens in the Christian faith is that there are sometimes ministries of the gospel that teach the Bible, but only on a very surface level. Maybe just good morals and good lessons and just stories, and biblical teaching never becomes more than just do this, don't do that, and hear some nice stories and have a good day. When that happens and people are hungry for more, they think that the Christian faith doesn't have the capacity of the depths to satisfy their desire for more, and they end up looking elsewhere and they say, well, the Christian faith is far too simplistic. If I want to know more, I'm just going to go somewhere else. I'm going to chase this philosophy or that philosophy. I'm hungry, and this gospel ministry is not satisfying my hunger, and I want to know more. And you know what? 
that happens a lot, actually. Where the gospel teaching and the Bible preaching is very surface level, leaving people saying, that can't be all there is, so they leave and go elsewhere. And where that's true, loved ones, it's a sorrowful reality. It's a sorrowful reality. Because the Bible is sufficient. The Bible is sufficient for all of our intellectual curiosities and wanting to go deeper. Uh, the, the, The early church often said that the Bible is of such wonder that the child can wade into it and enjoy and the elephant can swim in its depths. It is deep enough and shallow enough at the same time to be able to understand it, but then when you go deeper, there are depths there that none can possibly touch. So there is a sufficient amount of material in the Bible for you to go deeper. You don't need to leave the Bible to explore the deep truths of the world. They are contained in the Bible. So that's one temptation, that there is a desire for depth that people think the Bible can't satisfy and they check out. Another temptation, though, is those Christian believers who say, you know what? Everything I learned in Sunday school is everything I'll ever need to know. Don't teach me. I don't want to grow. I don't need to know anymore. I don't want to learn. I'm totally content right where I am. These are the same folks who might think it reasonable that they deserve a Ph.D. in mathematics because you finished elementary school. As if there isn't more for you to know. Algebra, trigonometry, geometry, calculus, advanced theory. There are those who want to go deeper and think the Bible can't sustain that depth. And there are those who are totally content being shallow and never going deeper. And Paul's ministry of the gospel is intent to collect that entire spectrum of people and gather them in around the gospel and say, you can grow, you need to grow, there are depths here to satisfy your intellectual curiosities that you will never wear out, you don't need to go elsewhere. Paul's ministry is a laboring ministry of gospel ministry to tell the people of God there are depths and mysteries that need to be learned and grown into and enjoyed and loved in Jesus Christ. So, if you find yourself perhaps on that spectrum today thinking that Christianity is too shallow and you need to go somewhere deeper, or you find yourself saying, you know what, I'm totally content, Paul has a word for both groups. And the word is explaining to us how we should receive the ministry of the gospel. And he does it through these three headings of talking about his work of the ministry of the gospel and then also the threats and joys of gospel ministry. You see that outline there in the text. So let's, let's see how Paul explains the ministry of the gospel as it is received by those who he labors for. Paul is here, first of all, talking about gospel work in the first three verses. The work of the gospel. So look at it again in verse 1 as Paul says, I want you to know, as if if everything he's written so far, he didn't want them to know. Of course he wants them to know all of it, but he's placing an emphasis here, do you see? I want you to know. I want you to understand something he's saying about, still in verse 1, this great struggle. The great struggle that Paul undertakes as a minister of the gospel, his labors. He's talked about it so far in chapter 1. For example, in chapter 1, verse 9, his labor of prayer. We have not ceased to pray for you, 
Paul says. The great struggle of gospel ministry is the labor of prayer. He also says in chapter 1, verse 28, the the, the laboring of proclaiming Christ. Chapter 1, verse 28, Him we proclaim. Paul says gospel ministry is a, a labor of struggle to pray and preach and declare the glories of Christ. Paul says, I work hard for you to know the gospel in my ministry. Now, if you want to keep your finger there in the book of Colossians, turn left and go to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And what Paul gives there is a a more detailed description of his labors, a more detailed description of his sufferings even of the work of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11 at verse 23, it's on page 970 of a Purack Bible. But there in 2 Corinthians 11, he, he gives more detail. He's not doing this to to get attention or to receive acclaim, but he wants the church to know how much effort he puts forward for the sake of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 says this, speaking of other servants, are they servants of Christ? I am a better one. I'm talking like a madman. With far greater labors. So here he goes, talking about this description. Far more imprisonments. With countless beatings and often near death. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the forty lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure, and apart from many other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak and I am not weak? Who is made to fall and I am not indignant? Paul's there talking about his ministry, and some people would say to him, you know what, Paul, why don't you just stop? I mean, beaten and shipwrecked, good grief, quit, would you? It's clear that it's not going well for you. To which he would say, I can't. This is my labor, my struggle to minister the gospel of Jesus to the people of God. And Paul says to the Colossians, I have struggled for you and for those in Laodicea. Back in Colossians chapter 2, he says, for those at Laodicea, which is the region around Colossae, these people are living in communities, gathering in churches, and Paul says, I want them to know the gospel. And here's what I want them to know as he continues on there. He says again, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. For these reasons, at verse 2, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love and to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. What Paul is saying here is that The gospel work, the ministry of the gospel, is so that we, the church, would receive the ministry of the gospel and grow in Christ. Grow in faith. And he has these descriptions. Do you see him there in verse 2 and 3? He says, I want you uh, to have your hearts encouraged. I want you to be fused with spiritual courage and strength and comfort to exist to urge and exhort you and implore you to press on. Be encouraged, he says, as you receive the ministry of the gospel. Also, as you receive the ministry of the gospel, I want you to be knit together in love. He's talking there about the community of faith and how the gospel knits together people. 
people who might otherwise come from different places or backgrounds or experiences and brings them together in love to call themselves brothers and sisters in Christ, the family of God. He says, I want you to be encouraged. I want you to be knit together. This is what the work of the gospel is doing in you. As you grow in Christ, you're encouraged. You grow in love and you also grow, he says there in verse 2. Do you see it? Reach the riches of assurance. Reach the riches of assurance. Paul wants the Christian believers who receive the gospel to grow in their confidence in the gospel. We should pause and ask the question, do you find yourself growing in assurance, growing in confidence, growing in spiritual strength and conviction such that you are more certain of your faith today than you were in the past? Now, granted, there are seasons that challenge our assurance, but Paul says, as you, a Christian believer, receive the ministry of the gospel, this is what I want to see happening in your life, uh, growing in courage, growing in love, growing in assurance, as you grow up in the knowledge of Christ. Growing in Christ, in other words, is the purpose of your reception of the ministry of the gospel. Growing in Christ. Now, when Paul says in verse 3, the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, Christ is the source of all of these things. Christ is the source of your courage. Christ is the source of your love. Christ is the source of your assurance. And so he is proclaiming Christ. This language here is much more emphatic in the Greek. It can really read this. And the knowledge of God's mystery, Christ. It doesn't, in the original language, say which is. That's added to help us understand his grammar. But Paul is saying your courage, your love, your assurance is all in Christ. The fullness of God's mystery. You should receive the ministry of the gospel as the proclamation of Christ. And we've been saying this in the Colossian series. Paul is essentially saying to them, you have believed it. Continue to believe it. Don't stop believing. So, he says, this is the work of the ministry of the gospel and your reception of it. And the reason why he's so concerned to say this is because of what verse 4 says as he underlines this second aspect, that there are threats to this gospel work. There are gospel threats. There are threats to you being encouraged, threats to you being knit together, threats to your assurance, threats to your knowledge of Christ. And it's this in verse 4. He, he writes, I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. Gospel threats here in verse 4. Paul says, this is why I'm saying this to you, so that... No one. No one. And when Paul says no one, he means nobody. Suggesting that there will be those in your life who attempt to delude you. Now what's he talking about there? He's talking about being deluded with plausible arguments. Not dilution in terms of uh, reducing the solvency of a liquid, but rather deluded meaning deceived. Delude you is the same word that James 1.22 uses when it says, be doers of the word, not only hearers, and so deceive yourself. The word deceive is the same root from the word Paul uses here, delude. Paul doesn't want you, as a Christian, to be deceived. 
by anybody who is attempting to make plausible arguments to try to pull you away from Christ. Because Christ is the substance of the ministry of the gospel in which you grow in courage and love and assurance and knowledge, to be deluded is to move you away from Christ and try to convince you that there are more things important, more things valuable, more things deserving of your time, attention, and scheduling than Christ. So again, he's already hinted about this. Again, back in chapter 1, verse 23, he wants them to continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, emphasizing not shifting from the hope of the gospel, which again emphasizes to us that it is possible to shift from the hope of the gospel. So, dear friends, where are you tempted or deluded or on the receiving end of plausible arguments to attempt to move you away from Christ and shift from the hope of the gospel. I venture to guess it might look differently in your life than in somebody else's life. Every one of us is walking our own path with the Lord in spiritual pilgrimage, and yet there are definitely common realities that we all face as the church that are attempting to delude us with plausible arguments to move us away from Christ and shift from the hope of the gospel. I'm going to touch on this later on in greater detail in the book of Colossians, but I'll just mention this by way of pastoral observations. Loved ones, you see this everywhere, and it would absolutely astonish generations of Christians in ages past but what is one of the greatest areas of confusion to delude and attempt to persuade people away from the truth of Christ and the gospel today is areas of sexuality and gender issues. It's everywhere, isn't it? And you can't go anywhere without hearing about it all the time, and everybody's triggered by all of it. And you might say, well, what does that have to do with the gospel? What well, has everything to do with the gospel, doesn't it? It has to do with the way God made you who you are, who gets to say who you are, as God didn't mess up when he made you. Figuring out who am I and what's my purpose in life are gospel issues. Dear friends, we are interacting with an increasingly post-Christian world. We understand that. And oftentimes the church gets itself in trouble when we attempt to apologize on the front end for what we believe and try to convince people that what we believe isn't actually all that hostile to the current secular worldview and we draw people in with this false notion that, oh, this, this view is completely the same as your view and then we're drawn in and what you do is if you remove the distinctions on the front end, you're never able to introduce the distinctions on the back end because you've persuaded somebody that there are actually no distinctions to the Christian faith whatsoever. That the Christian worldview is totally compatible with all other secular worldviews, and that's just not true. It's much better to say up front, this is what I believe. I'm not sorry for it. The Bible teaches it. I can hold it with love and compassion in my heart. It's much better to say that and to present it graciously and winsomely. Dear church, if accommodation is the strategy, the distinctives will never come out. Let me say that it is possible to disagree without being disagreeable, and it is possible to charitably assert the truth of the Christian faith. And what Paul is concerned about is that there will be louder voices in your life than the voice of Jesus. There will be what you perceive to be more plausible arguments than the plausibility of the gospel. 
Now, when he describes these things as being deluded by plausible arguments, the reason why they're plausible is because on the surface they sound reasonable. At first hearing, it doesn't sound so significant. But upon deeper evaluation, we see deep worldview contradictions. Paul wants these Christians, and we should want for ourselves, a developing, maturing Christian faith that is able to discern what we are hearing and the ability to say, that doesn't sound right. That doesn't sound like it works in the economy of God's wisdom. The plausibility of arguments to take you away from Christ, what you often see today, too, is uh, the way in which these deceiving arguments are advanced, plausible or not, with great passion. Oftentimes people think that all they have to do is yell the loudest and I'll gain the best hearing. I don't care if you didn't understand me the first time, I'll just say it again louder. It's not helpful. Because why? Passionately spoken nonsense is still just that. Nonsense. Paul does not want Christian believers, Paul does not want you and I to be deluded by anything that would lead us away from Christ and His glorious purposes of understanding His redemptive grace in our life. That's why Paul labors so much. That's why he works so hard. That's why he is willing to suffer so that you and I would know clearly the true ministry of Christ in grace. Not to be deluded by other plausible arguments that are themselves actually nonsense. Because why you exist, the reason for your existence is most satisfactorily explained in the gospel. Not somewhere else. These threats exist, these gospel threats. So Paul says, this is why I labor, because these threats exist. But I want you to know, church, he says in verse 5, that he has joy in this ministry. That's why he labors so significantly. He wants you to know his joy. And so finally, this gospel joy there in verse 5, he writes, For though I am absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Remember that Paul has never been to Colossae. He's never ministered in person in this church. He has heard about the faithfulness of their ministry and is writing to encourage them with the hope that one day he'll come to them. But he wants them to know that as he struggles, as he is separate from them, he wants them to know that he doesn't do it begrudgingly or with anger. He does it with joy. Paul is joyful in the reception of his lashes, joyful in the experience of the shipwrecks, joyful in the experience of hardships and people misunderstanding him and being hostile to him because the goal of his ministry far outweighs the sorrows of the suffering because he is chasing something that is bigger and he wants us as Christian believers to see and evaluate the world as being more than just the temporal experiences of our sufferings and hardships to see that we're chasing an eternal glory of joy in Christ. And Paul says, I'm modeling it for you. I'm joyful for your sake. I'm joyful as I see your, in verse 5, your good order and the firmness of your faith. Paul is saying the gospel ministry is happening amongst you, church in Colossae. You're, you're well ordered. Your faith is firm. And seeing that brings me joy. Uh, he uses this same language uh, in other places. Actually, you might be able to just look on the opposite page at Philippians 4, verse 1. 
as Paul writes the Philippian church, and he describes them as in Philippians 4.1, you are my joy, you are my crown. The Apostle Paul loves the church. He labors for the church for them to know and receive a faithful ministry of the gospel. He has overflowing affection for the church of Jesus Christ in Philippi, in Colossae, in the region of Laodicea, and around the world. That's why he does what he does, because the church is worth it. The church is a beautiful reality. The gathering of the saints of God in common faith in Jesus Christ, standing together in firm faith, is a beautiful, glorious reality. That's probably why in John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Christian goes on his journey and he eventually comes to this place called the Palace Beautiful. And the Palace Beautiful is supposed to represent the church on earth that Christians go to throughout their journey. And in the Palace Beautiful, they're able to find common fellowship, common affection, people who share their convictions, people who want to encourage them in the decisions that they're making. They draw joy and strength from one another in the palace beautiful as Christian goes and meets various people there in the palace and he draws strength from them and he is refreshed. Do you find yourself refreshed on the Lord's day by God's people? Do you find yourself strengthened? Do you find yourself encouraged? Is it helpful to look around and see that there are other people who believe like you believe and who care about the things that you care about and who care to raise their children or their grandchildren in the ways that are important to you as well so that we together are marching forward to Zion as the Bible says. John Bunyan draws that metaphor, the palace beautiful, to say, We get respite, we are refreshed, we are strengthened and encouraged and built up in the church. It's also where Christian gets to receive his armor. Christian comes into the palace beautiful without armor and he leaves with armor, a shield, a sword, a helmet, a breastplate. In other words, prepared for more of the vicious attacks that he's going to face. And Paul says here, they come by way of plausible arguments. Not by literal swords and flaming arrows, but by persuasive speech and convincing arguments to try to attempt you to turn away from Christ. And Paul says, church, you are my joy and you are the joy of one another's life as you encourage, refresh, strengthen one another as you receive and believe the gospel together. So, that's what the church is, isn't it? That's what the church is for. A gathering of the saints who love Christ, who love His Word, who embrace His Gospel, and who pledge to live together in common community for His sake. And Paul says, it's my joy. And hopefully the church is growing in that reality of a joy to one another where we can say that we're being encouraged, we're being knit together, we're being fully assured as we grow in Christ, remaining firm in our faith rather than shifting. I want to say to you as your pastor that if you find yourself shifting, if you feel that, that Jesus is an insufficient Savior for you and you're tempted to look elsewhere, you won't find it. You won't find it. But in Jesus Christ, you will find 
an infinite mystery of love and grace and mercy that you will spend your entire life pursuing and never finding the bottom and learning to grow in rejoicing in Jesus Christ and in the wonders of the gospel again and again and again. Church, be convinced by that, please, that Christ is all, that He is sufficient. And it is a beautiful thing to be a Christian, a beautiful thing to be a part of a church family and receive together the ministry of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of grace, mercy, love, and compassion who draws together your people in particular places to be strengthened, to be encouraged, to be knit together in love. We pray, Father, that this place might be such a place as that a palace beautiful in the midst of the weariness of the journey, to be strengthened and filled with resolve to press on. Lord, bless your word to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon. If you would like more information about our church or its ministries, please visit edgingtonepc.org. May God bless and keep you.